Hi, everybody. I'm Michael Lane. I'm the president of Lift Park Group, and we're going to start our Monday edition of the Dare Greatly Space podcast. As most of you all know, we are doing this show at that kind of intersection between space, policy, commercialization, advanced technology, and infrastructure development. It's been an awful lot of fun. We've been doing this for nearly five months now. We just got our first episodes up on Spotify, so I will uh, post that link here in just a moment. So pretty happy about that. So definitely, um, you know, like and subscribe to our YouTube channel where you're watching this now. When you're in the car and you got you know time to kill, uh, pull up our Dare Greatly channel. Uh, note that there actually uh, are several shows called Dare Greatly. This would be the space one, so not the self-help one or the, uh, the business development one. I love our branding, I love our name, but uh, it, it is a little bit common, so we're gonna have to work a little bit to uh, distinguish ourselves. So anybody who's been watching this show knows we kind of have three kinds of shows. We have one with a guest. We have one that's really a news recap, one that focuses on policy. We're not going to be doing news and policy today. We're going to be bringing on our guest, Michael Mealing, in just a moment. But I did want to point out that there was a really big policy thing that came out just a few days ago. I'll post a link to it here in a moment, but it's basically the White House's uh, new policy on you know, developing Leo. And really important, they put a piece in there about settlement. Now, it's a throwaway line. My friend Peter Gerritsen is super excited about it because it's the first time that as a national policy, as an Office of Science and Technology policy doctrine from the White House, the word settlement has ever officially been used. It's one line in a 15-page paper. It's one line in one paragraph of 15-page paper. So it is not the North Star document that a lot of our spacers want, but that it exists at all is a very good sign and a step in the right direction. So I'll post those links in just a moment. But uh, Sam, retype that because I just enabled the, uh, the chat so he can't see that. <laughs> Michael, he says, yay, Michael Mealing. So <laughs> you got fans, buddy. We're going to bring on Michael Mealing and talk about money and space and that intersection. So let me bring you over here, sir. Michael, great to see you. Thanks for thanks for being part of our show today. Yep, good to see you again, Michael. I have had Michael Mealing on this show, not on this show, different iterations. So this is a kind of a new show. It's only been running for about five months. But Michael Mealing has been a part of many of our Blue Water We conversations for the future, many of our shows over the last three years. And I have known Michael for 20 years. Mealing is my, my second oldest space friend. And it's funny because we met, I met Tom Olson in the morning and I met you in the afternoon 
20 years ago in Colorado at the Mars Society Conference. So we've been, we've been friends for a long time. So it's great to see you kind of growing and changing and kind of becoming the person you always wanted to be and enabling this, this space infrastructure. So and um, growing rounder too. <laughs> COVID did that to all of us, man. Yeah. Um, give us your background. How did you become, rather than me reading a boring bio, how did you become a spacer? How did you get to your current position? We're going to talk about your current role later. So really, I want to hear the, the pioneering roles that you've had, because they're pretty interesting. So yeah, my name is Michael Meeling. I am a space nerd. It's been uh, about 10 minutes since my last uh, Twitter uh, stream on space. I've tried going down the 12-step program, but I give up after the first step. I got started in this business when I got tired of working on the internet after the dot-com bubble pop. I was involved very early in the internet before most people knew what it was. Back in 89, ended up working for a company called VeriSign, which ran the, the root of the internet in DNS. Did that for a while. Saw the dot-com bubble uh, pop. Tried my first startup. It was a boring internet-enabled supply chain management thing. Screwed it up royally. Did all of the things that I tell entrepreneurs these days not to do. Don't fall in love with your technology. Talk to your customers. You, I didn't do any of those. Got married right around that time. Ended up having a, a heart attack when I was 33. This was in 20, 2002. And... Laying on the hospital bed, I decided it was time for me to try something else, go big or go home kind of thing. Around that same time, starting the next year, I had really noticed that a lot of the same dynamics that allow people using the internet to be able to do things that had never been done before, pets.com or Amazon or whatever, were happening in the space sector, especially I started looking at, you know, I flew model rockets like as a kid, like we all did, but I was seeing people out in the Black Rock Desert fly things that we're not model rockets anymore. These people were making serious attempts at getting into space. One of the things I realized was what was enabling that was the drastic drop in costs associated with the same network effects that you get from the internet. The internet was enabling of everything lowering its costs. And so I started paying attention to it and realized that there was something here. The things going in the pointy ends were getting cheaper. The rockets themselves, if you applied commercial principles to it, were getting cheaper. Just started blogging about that, an old blog that I ran at the time called Rocket Forge. But one of the things I was kvetching about was the fact that nobody was actually looking at these things as businesses. It was very much the same mistake that I made in my first startup by falling in love with the technology and not with the actual customer problem. And I was you know, basically bitching and moaning about this for about a year and a half, two years, when David Mastin, founder of Mastin Space Systems, basically uh, called me out on an email and said, you keep bitching about this stuff. I need a CFO. Would you mind come joining the team and help us actually sell this stuff? And, and that's when I joined Mastin. Uh, that was in 2004. Let me interrupt. Uh, we had Sean Mahoney on the show just uh, about a month and a half ago. So Sean was a, a contractor for us that, yeah, it was, a, it was a small team. And Sean is now executive director and chairman of the board of the Space Frontier Foundation on which I'm the board. So yes, yeah, it's, it's a small world. You keep hanging out with the same people over and over again. I left Mastin in 2010 when I was doing my MBA. Talk, was, talk a little bit more about Mastin because that's a pretty significant sure. part of that story. I don't well, want to derail you, but I want to no, hear no, no. it. We were delusional. We thought it was going to be easier than it was. We were really trying 
part of us were trying to build a silver orbital launch vehicle to take advantage of some of the, the hype going on at the time about um, testing. I was really actually interested in bringing suborbital launch to the K-12 community. We really did vertical takeoff, vertical landing. Uh, us and Armadillo were kind of the pioneers of that. Yeah. We were the first company, first ever in-air relight of a VTVL. And That's every awesome. time, even now when I watch that video on YouTube, my, my heart jumps it, because it goes up and then it just shuts off. You're like, oh, no, it's going to crash. And then it, it falls out of the sky and then it reengages the engine, relights. I mean, it was shut off, yeah. relights, regains control and lands normally. There is Norm a, Normally, that is the new normal as of exactly, that point. Yeah. Right. Prior to that, it never happened. There is a, a legend that, um, you know, next time I meet Elon face to face, I'm going to ask him. It was that video and us doing that that kind of prompted him to, to re-examine the, the idea of, of vertical landing. We ended up winning the North Grumman Lunar Lander Challenge, which is about 1.1 million. One of the things that nobody thought was a determining factor on winning that was, was landing accuracy. But both us and Armadillo were really doing it head to head. To head. And what ended up determining who won was our landing accuracy. That was a lot of fun. After that, we had Maston had some challenges, as everybody did, because the market still wasn't ready yet. Way too early. That seems to be a theme in my career. Anyway, I did that, left Maston, did a, uh, tried to do a couple more internet startups. Still have two of them that if I had the money, I would do them over again. I got sucked into being the CTO role at a small technology venture capital fund in Atlanta, where I lived at the time. This was 2014. I was there 14, 15, and 16. I was helping run the back office, so knowing how to run a venture fund. Right. But I was also doing a lot of technical due diligence. And this was about the time you started seeing planetary resources, a few of these other companies starting to come out. SpaceX was starting to indicate what it could eventually do. And my general partner at the time, the in the venture capital fund, the general partner is kind of the boss. They're the ones that get to make the investment decisions and the ones that are ultimately liable for the, the limited liability partnerships. He wanted to make some space investments. So I went out and looked at PRI and a few others. He wanted to invest in Vector. I went out to PRI and I like, okay, there is a business here, but it's not going to be one that pays out for 20 plus years. And in venture capital, your venture capital funds are generally 10 years. So he was selling a 10 year fund to people that were in their seventies. And there's no way that they were going to be alive when PRI exited. And it just didn't, it, it didn't fit the 10 year thesis. And I'm like, you should, you should not do this deal and you should not do the vector deal. He did the PRI deal anyway, PRI then, Business. Yeah, about two years later. So I was frustrated, left there, you know, just got a little dinky little side gig, but I was in ISDC in 2017. And that's when I met Steven Jorgensen, our founder at Starbridge and my, my co-GP, good friend. And we were the only two finance people in the room. Actually, I think you were even there. I, I was there. I wasn't going to stay under there. Yeah. And, then I, and you were there. And I remember Greg Autry trying to sell me on the skateboard thing. And, yeah. yeah. Charles Miller was there before he built Lynx. Um, that, that, that ISCC, let's talk about that. International Space Development Conference. It's, uh, it, it's, it's run by the National Space Society. Uh, and I mean this in a very genuinely heartfelt way, but it's sometimes considered the, uh, the family reunion of space because you're yes. going to see grandmas gr bringing granddaughters but in the backs of the rooms, there's guys like Mealing and guys like Autry and folks 
there to make deals, right? They're there to build something. Mm -hmm. uh, that particular ISDC, where was that? Was that in St. Louis, I think? Yeah, um, it was somewhere in the Midwest. Yeah. I remember that was the... the yeah, story. and uh, yeah, because it was the first time I'd, I'd seen the arches up close. The arch, mm -hmm. you know, there's a big Boeing group there, and and so they help sponsor it. And, and the National Space Society does a really good job of putting on an annual conference. But there's real work that happens in the backgrounds of these things. Mm -hmm. That's great. The ISDC last year that I went to, which was the, the first one that was um, back face-to-face -face after the pandemic, we're all getting old. We need to get some fresh blood into these conferences. Yeah, so Stephen and I were sitting in the back of the room and we're, you know, I was bemoaning what my previous fund, the general partner had been doing with space. Stephen was, you know, we were both at one point we turned to each other and it's like out of a romantic comedy or something, when you see two people turn each other and say the same thing at the same time, um, we, were both, we were both had come to the conclusion that it was time for serious uh, returns focused, no cheerleading, rah, 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 space is great, but someone to invest in the sector that did it with the cold calculated requirement for you actually have to make money and you have to make enough money to justify me being able to make the investment in order to be able to return money to my investors. That's when Stephen had started Starbridge a few months earlier. Lindsay Yee out of San Francisco was was involved. Myself, I was in Atlanta at the time. I, I connected uh, Stephen to ISU, and that's how it got Lindsay. I've never met yeah. her. I've never yeah. met her. I hadn't met her at that point either, and it wasn't until a year later at another conference that we happened to sit there together. Anyway, starting in 2017, we actually spun up the fund, started raising money. Your your first fund is always tiny. There's some really big funds out there that um, their first funds were you know, million, two million. So we started making some of our investments. We had we we kind of lucked out because at the time there were there were several companies that were destined to be very large. Um, Axiom, Umbra, Link, Aluma Power, which we can get into. Uh, a few others that are really now starting to... A venture capital fund that hits one 10-bagger, 10x return, is typical. It's low end of the performance. Generally, you would like a, you know, a 20x, a 5x, and then whatever. In fund one, I have... Four 20x companies. That's all. Awesome. But now the pressure is, is yeah, I got to do it again. Well, but and there are more choices now. There are more choices that there are. There are, but the easy things have been are being done. Now we're getting to where we're challenged around business models that we have no conviction around. We're getting into, for example, um, debris mitigation. You know, garbage companies don't generally make venture capital returns. So I don't know exactly who's going to be paying for that business model to work. Uh, it may not be venture investment. So far, it's been governments. Exactly. And, and if you look at, especially taxpayers don't like it when the garbage company makes a lot of money, except in certain cities that happens anyway. So now we, we, we after that, we raised fund two. How, how big was fund one? Fund one was a little over a million, about okay. 1.6. Fund two was 12.1. We just started raising fund three. Congratulations. That's Thank all. You. Yeah. Well, you know, congratulate me when I close fund three. Looking back at 2017, wondering what the immediate future was going to look like. Many funds don't get to fund three. 
And they certainly don't have four companies in their first portfolio that have made 20x returns. So I haven't got an exit on them yet. Don't you have an exit on Redwire and uh, Virgin? Didn't you exit? Do you have a... We, we never invested in Virgin. You didn't. Okay. All right. Yeah. I distinctly remember telling Alex Ty to get a real engine a long time ago when he was trying to turn that vehicle into something that could fly. And made in space, we got our money back. And that was at the very beginning of the pandemic. And a lot of people were panicking. So, so yeah, Fun2 was a little over 12. That's now fully deployed. Is that and fully deployed? We deployed all of Fun2 this past fall. We doubled down on a couple of existing companies. Venture funds don't normally do, they do that, but we only do it if I can make the same level of returns in the next fund by doubling down. Um, there are some funds out there that a follow-on fund will come in and rescue a semi-bad investment. And that's that's not good. We don't do that. And you can look at our website. The entire portfolio is, is there. We also do co-investments. That's where Either the fund may or may not be in a particular deal, but people want access to it and we have access to it and we'll set up an SPV and people can come in and do that. Um, we did that with, with SpaceX. One of the things about our thesis is we do take a bit more of an expansive view of what we consider space. One of our investments was a company called Oros Apparel. You can actually find them online. They're their outerwear clothing is great. Uh, they licensed a polymer-based aerogel technology from NASA. Their first line of clothing had that had that that material in it, but they since then have been able to turn that into a textile that can be woven. So it's a weavable aerogel. Now they're doubling down on the clothing, but they've also, for example, got a a recent contract with DOD to replace the tent material in all the Army's tents. Because the insulative aspects, but also if you think about it, it's not just insulation, it's also infrared camouflage. But if you look at a space application, this is an exact material you would like to be able to put in spacesuits to be able to give you thermal protection. We're in a company called Cosmic Shield Incorporation, which does the same thing, but for radiation. We like things that have terrestrial and space applications. That way you've got multiple different revenue sources. Right. So we do a lot of material science. We like human spaceflight. Especially it recently, um, there was a phenomenon that was going, that was happening in in human spaceflight. I'm not going to use the, the the tourism word. What happened was prior to Crew Dragon, Russia would fly you, but Space Adventures was having a really hard time getting anybody to bite. The price had gone up a little bit. I didn't realize this until I actually got to sit in a Soyuz trainer uh, at Johnson Space Center one time. Oh, you're so tight. Your knees are around your chin. You can't move. It's terrible. I was only 215. I'm 6'4". I was only 215 at the time. I'm, you could not fit in that thing. I could not fit in it. Right. I'm just going to die. Like, right. no, it was, it's impossible. But then Crew Dragon came out and it looked like a real freaking spaceship. Right. Then they showed the spacesuits and the astronauts walking out like, you walk into any bar in any city with a spaceport in it, and that suit will get you laid. And, <laughs> and, and that's what it was. We finally had somebody that brought a sense of style and branding. It made the experience worth having. And, and that's when, you're talking to my friends at Axiom, that's when the sales went through the roof. I mean, we're not through the roof. 
they actually started closing sales. Yeah. Through the roof would be, you know, you know, a couple thousand people a year going. Right. Yeah. And we're not going to do that until the price gets down between 10 and 20 million. But that's where it happened. And so we've been paying a lot of attention to that and enabling it. We were in a stem cell based meat company. They recently folded, couldn't get through the, the pandemic and really the downturn at the end of last year. Because if you're going to have a large number of people living in space, you are not going to replicate the livestock supply chain right. much to any fan of the Muppet show. We're not going to have pigs in space. <laughs> um, you're going to, if you want a burger, you're going to grow it in the back. Right. And so that's where that, that came from. So we, we do, we look at all of the aspects of the space industry and that partially comes from something that, that we do at Starbridge. We, a lot of venture capital funds, and I used to say I hated the idea of an integrated space plan, but I now built one. <laughs> right. Uh, a lot of stories about that integrated space plan. Here, copy that into the right chat for me. We, a lot of venture capital funds out there, and even the one that I worked for previously, you really are very, uh, you're not a passive investor. You actually choose which investments you want to make you are simply responding to the companies that come to you. You're, it's very rare to find a venture capital fund that goes out and seeks companies and, and works to cause companies to come into existence. Right. Uh, we, on the other hand, spent some time really gaming out what the next 30 plus years of the space sectors will look like. And when you look on, on the graded space plan, you'll see uh, there's a certain color, a gold color for a block. Those are gaps. Those are things that do not exist that need to exist for other things to be able to utilize them and, and go forward. This is where we identified the Starship Singularity. We started, we put in there like, I don't see anybody building anything past that that utilizes it. And no one's talking about it. And we were not asked and nobody did. We identified that. And so it really helps us understand where the industry is going to go. And the reason we do that, it's, You'll hear the, the phrase that most venture capital funds are 10 years, and I'm looking for getting a 10x exit within the 10 years. At 10x is the floor. What you really want is 20. But when you think about it, in order to be able to get any kind of exit, usually in year five, six, seven of your fund, someone else has to want to buy that from you and so they have to realize a return on that investment. And generally, that is also in, in a five to seven year horizon when they right. want to be able to realize the, the gains for what they, what they just purchased, whether it's the stock market or an acquisition or a PE firm or whatever. And so when we invest, we're not looking at the market in five, six, seven years. We're looking at what the market is going to be in you know, 15 years in the future. And so that's why I pay a lot of attention to not what's going on right now. That's why I spend a lot of time on the Hill looking at where, what can I do from a policy standpoint that enables a future that means I have things to invest in. Because if, I, if I'm still limited to nothing but Earth observation and comms, I start running out of things to invest in in about 15 years. You know, whether it's Link or, and, 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 and Starlink and everything else, everybody has coverage. We now have ubiquitous high-speed communications from everything to everything. Great. You know, there's only Great. so much you can do there. Yeah. So that's why we're currently not investing in things beyond geo because I can't figure out the business models, but I'm doing a lot of work to try and make sure that they, they happen. 
because I don't intend on retiring and I don't want to have to go work at McDonald's. <laughs> good plan. Good plan. Uh, this third fund that you're building, how big is it? And about how long does it take to, to raise that? We're targeting 125 million. Jesus, 10, 10 times what you just finished. Which the one we just finished was 10 times larger than the one before that. We're going exponential, baby. Excellent. Um, Excellent. But really what it was is, is that was how much pro rata and allocation we left on the table and couldn't take advantage of from funds one and two. Okay. So if I'd had the money, I could have deployed every bit of it. Yeah, yeah, I'm sure you could have. So that's why we went with that particular number. Any more than that, and I'm afraid I might start making stupid, stupid decisions in order to get the money deployed. Let's 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 just spend let's spend just three minutes. Sure. What are the mechanics of being a VC? Sure. You're you're the general. You and you and Stephen are the general, mm -hmm. uh, general partners, and you've got X number of limited partners they're going to put in i mean the makeup numbers i'm uh, this, this is not you telling you can correct me if you like but i'm doing a, a generic one right you have uh general partners that put in a quarter million a million at a time they are the general partner they're sorry they're the limited partners they get the result of your hard work you get a piece of the result and they get a piece of the result and so right. ultimately you are responsible not to the companies that you invest in, but to the limited partners that invest in you. A lot of people don't understand the basic mechanics of how that whole ecosystem works. You are beholden not to the companies that you invest in. You are beholden to the companies that, I'm sorry, to the limited partners who entrust you with their capital. Your job is to make them more money. And when Stephen and I were talking about Starbridge, that was the key. The way you get more money into the sector is you actually make money for people. You give them, you don't just give them a profit. You have to give them a significant profit. That's one of the things right now that's just bugging the fire of every investor in the sector is we haven't had any big exits yet. That's a problem. When somebody sell your company, please. If you're completely outside the loop on venture capital, there's this perception that if you just you know set up a venture capital fund, money just appears from nowhere. But no, you actually have to go out and sell the fund, get investors to, to give you their money trusting that you'll be able to go return more money given the risk. And so I, I will tell whenever I, I have an entrepreneur that's pitching us, dude, I hear no just as much as you do. I've just <laughs> been hearing it so long. I've just, I've been beating my head against the wall for so long. I'm kind of numb to it. And I'm like, and you will too. You know, if you keep doing this, you'll become numb to it and you'll just go forward regardless. And then you win. Once you do that, a general venture fund will last 10 years. Your first two to four years, you are deploying capital. You're making investments in companies. The next two to four years, you're growing the value of that capital. And then the last you know, four years of the fund, you're what we call harvesting. That company needs to be sold, IPO, exit, some way of returning your money to you. We will, most venture capital funds will charge a management fee, usually 2% per year on the, the amount invested by the limited partners. That pays the bills. That also, that pays the bills of the management company as well. But that's about all it does. It pays the bills. Given how hard it is to run a venture fund and how risky it can be, it does not justify the effort on its own. That's where carry comes in. 
carry is whenever a company exits, our our LPs get 80% of the profit and we get 20% of the profit. And that's what you're really in the business to do. Right. Is get, get to that because then everybody's interests are aligned. Everybody gets a payday and then you can recycle it and do whatever. Again. And so that's, that's the challenge. And so we're now raising fund three. We're out doing that sales job, given the current investment climate. It's better than it was back in November, but it's still, it, it just interest. We're sort of fighting interest rates right now because a lot of people are like, well, I can get really good T-bill rates and things. I'm like, right. yeah, but you're still only a, maybe a, you know, three quarters of a point above, above the inflation rate. And, but that's a battle. And a lot of people don't know exactly what the Fed's going to do. The Silicon, Va- Silicon Valley bank failure was a direct result of a Silicon Valley bank being stupid, even though they were our bank. I loved them to death, but them not hedging those long-term treasuries was beyond stupid. But the Fed raising rates as fast as they did, not giving the banking system and the markets a chance to respond to those rate changes is causing havoc. That's And Silicon Valley Bank was the result. I know they just raised it uh, recently, but I think this is going to be the last one. They need they need time for the economy to cook a little bit before they do it again. Oh, that's cool. That's that's why we have folks like you on the show in the first place. And for, for startups out there, access to debt is going to get harder, but sometimes it's actually, it's, it's easier to get debt financing. You're just going to pay for it. It's not going to be as cheap as it used to be, but it's definitely cheaper than giving up equity. You've got roughly a portfolio of 25 companies, roughly. Mm-hmm. There's thousands of space companies now. Are you only investing in the United States or are you going abroad now? I have one investment in Canada, two in the UK. I'm about to make another one in Europe. And there are, I'm actively looking in Europe, India, Southeast Asia, Middle East. The problem you run into is in a lot of cases, some of these countries have currency control type situations where, you know, we'll take your money, but it's hard to get it back out again. So we have to be a little bit careful where we invest in. There is value out there outside of the United States. There are certain businesses, for example, if you're in earth observation and you're targeting the agriculture market, agriculture is very culturally sensitive. You have to really have somebody in country who is able to sell it and manage it. And so we're looking at, you know, if anything we do ag tech related, that will probably be in country. India's commercial space sector is growing. I'm a little bit concerned right now that it's very duplicative. It's, you know, doing things just because, you know, the United States did them, you know, five, six years ago. Right. Everybody's building a rocket. I'm like, please stop building rockets. (laughs) Um, I I checked uh, the Space Fund database the other day and there's 186 launch companies in the world. Unless you can pull a Falcon 9 out of of your back pocket um, and compete with SpaceX, um, yeah, don't build a rocket. Even Elon learned that um, the people that actually make money are the people that you know that build the po- the things that go in the pointy end. Right. So right. that's why we have Starlink. Well, but that's that's the value chain, right? Um, mm-hmm. Every industry has the value chain. Yeah, it's it's not the rocket. The rocket looks cool, but the reason you build the rocket is to get the stuff into the sky right Right. and it's the things that go into the sky that have month over month over month over month revenue 
customers. Right, right. The launch is once, once and done, or if you've got reusability, that's fine. Maybe you can launch it 15 times, but at the end of the day, it's the assets in the sky that are generating all the cash flow. That's right. what's giving us the half a trillion dollar economy. So, right. so that, that I tell people, we really like applications, not components. A rocket is a component. Interesting. I had not heard that nuance before. I like applications, not components. Yeah, so I like hardware. I, I don't. I mean, if it's if you're all you're building is hardware. Yeah. yeah. If you're building an application that needs a hardware component, but you're building an application, sure. Hmm. But like reaction wheels and star trackers and IMUs, no, the margins are so tight on those things. They're commodities. And a lot, a lot of, of the, even once you get to the point where a constellation of anything is really over about 50 spacecraft is a tremendous pricing pressure to bring all that stuff in house. And that's what a lot of them do. The bigger constellations, they built their own star trackers. They built their own reaction. Models. Elon Musk and Ford proved that if you vertically integrate, you make a more efficient system. So I know, but that's not. That's not rocket science. We knew that already. I mean, why? I mean, Amazon—they vertically integrated. Duh. I see Doug uh, asking the uh, the question: To what extent do the settler and tourist passengers on Starship represent our customers? So there's two ways to answer that. The first is my customers, in terms of whether or not they could be limited partners. Potentially, yes. Right now, flying uh, to space is expensive. And that does mean that anybody that can the anybody that can afford a ticket is probably an investor class, you know, venture capital class investor. And so, yeah, I would totally hit them up. But in terms of them also being a customer of the companies I invest in, that's kind of the key. One of the things that, like I said earlier, if we don't move away or beyond Earth Observation and Comms, I do run out of things to invest in in about. 15 years. When we did the analysis in the the ISP, looking at what... The ISP is the integrated space. Integrated space. Oh, sorry. Yeah. And looking at what business models exist beyond geo. I'm, I'm actually semi-famous because I was actually on a, a thing earlier today. I think it was McKinsey that was running it. And there was a couple of people in there and, and they were talking about compute in space, like data centers in space and stuff. Right. They were talking about what are the business models? And they were talking about communications. You can do data storage. And, and, and I tweeted back into the, the chat for it. I'm like, no, the audience is asking about the ultimate customer. Who are the customer's customers? One of the person says, and there goes Michael Mealing asking about the customer's customers again. <laughs> like, well, yeah, because it, it that matters, you know. Right. If there's no ultimate customer pulling on this, then it's just a bunch of companies selling the same crap to each other over and over again. And that's honestly what happens when you look at what's going on in quote unquote the cis lunar industry. I mean, I I mean, I'm the former president of the Moon Society. I would love for this stuff to work. But it literally is about five or six companies selling the same damn kilogram of water to each other over and over again. Um, it's not what we mean by a circular economy. That's because there's no customer. All of the customers right now for anything are on the ground. Casey Hanmer and a few others, we've talked about resources in space for use in space versus resources in space for use on, the, on Earth. Resources in space for use on Earth don't make economic sense because you're trying to compete against an already highly optimized supply chain. 
And so we're looking for those things that need resources and consumables and everything else that a business needs in space where the user is also in space. And that really does boil down to people. Space-based solar power might be a temporary enabler, significant traction going on right now. It's one of the things I can't quite talk about, but it will be interesting when you hear about it. But really the, the thing that we're looking for is people in space. One of the things that if I, if I could wave my magic wand right now from a policy standpoint, um, I would love for the Congress to pass a joint resolution saying that, it, that space settlement is the goal of this nation. And our goal is to have 40,000, 10,000 American citizens living in space by 2040. And, and that's the kind of thing that I would, because right now, you know, federal government paying for stuff is not going to solve the problem. We need rhetoric. We need, um, really we just need rhetoric. You know, the, the capital is there. I think the demand is there. We do not have sufficient market data on what the actual demand is for human spaceflight. And that's something that I'm also working on uh, to, to get real data on that one. Do you want to talk about that here as a platform to start getting some data? The problem is that the website's currently kind of borked. I'll, I'll do that on another another time. Okay, all right. Um, and I'm also in the middle of writing the proposal to get some money into it to be able to take it full time and take it global. But yeah, that, that's a problem. Yeah, this is where I spend, we spend a lot of time. This is what bothers me as running Starbridge is as an industry, somebody needs to be able to pick their head up and look forward and make sure that we're setting the stage for what comes next. Because you are going to have a magic wand in the, in the tune of $125 million, where, like, how would you allocate that? What percent, oh. what thing? Because you do kind of have a magic wand, right? I mean, well, and, and, and that's a really good point. That's something that we talk about. When you end up in a capital-constrained environment, capital becomes, very deter becomes a significant determiner of success. Because if you're the only one that can get an investment and no one else can, you are the only one that survives. Right. And you get the market to yourself. It's not first mover advantage. It's first, last, always mover. Yeah. I mean, if you're the only mover, you get the advantage. Right. Right. Everything that we invest in has to make investment sense. I'm not going to be out there making um, bets on things that run the risk of not generating a return for my investors. Right. That just violates everything we created Starbridge for. There are things that we can do once we become, as a, as a management company, that we have the resources to do that get into determining that. And so there are there investments that I would make? Not quite yet. Not quite yet, but we're getting close. What sectors? Say 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 10% of your fund. Where, where are you going to put 12, $12.5 million dollars? Would that's that, be, that's, would, that that's really would that be space stations? Would that be tugs? Would that be? I've already money? got one space. I've already got one space station company. Well, you have one, but you didn't put twelve and a half million dollars into them. So uh, no, but I'm going to make a really nice return on that one. Um, you are. Yeah. <laughs> it really is going to be some of the things that you need on the space station. I like gravitics. Varda is a little interesting. Vast is also very interesting. Vast and Varda and Gravitics are so far the only companies that I know of that depend on Starship for their business model to even close right. at scale. Space-based entertainment 
things that make the experience for people in space interesting. What about point-to-point -point suborbital? I love Gwen, but the numbers don't work out because of the regulatory aspects of it. Oh, this I'm betting that's going to change. I would bet hard money that that's going to change. You would have to rip the FAA, rip, rip the FAA out of the federal government. It's not going to be FAA that's going to determine it. It's going to be the military. It's going to be the logistics. Oh, the military can do it all day long. And once once that happens, and it's going to happen, the FAA just has to move out of the way. They can't move out of the way. Congress wants to. Congress. The FAA, as soon as you touch anything that looks as though it's common carrier, and that's what you're talking about. If you're talking about point-to-point -point passenger for somebody who just wants to get somewhere, that's common carrier. The military is going to prove it and enable it and then... Not in any investable timeline because you, the current certification rules the FAA can work with, there is no provision for a rocket engine in there. Nothing can... there. There is no way to currently certify a rocket for common carrier flight, period. It's not possible. The regulations disallow it. So you would have to start over from scratch saying what the regulations are for how you build a rocket that gets you the same safety performance of a 727. How long do you think that will take to prove that? That is outside of my funding horizon. This is why I won't go send a supersonic Bizjet. Yeah, there are things that I can't invest in because of my 10-year rule. Starbridge may get into other types of, of vehicles that don't fit the venture capital model. There's other ways to do this. Venture debt is one. There's other Venture things. debt. You, you kind of danced around venture debt, but I didn't want to like go into it unless you were ready. It, it, it's, a, it's the same thing. It's just your interest is given to you in warrants on stock as opposed to just like a, a credit card. We only have seven seven minutes left. I yes, I just saw that go by. Any questions from the audience? I mean, Sam, I see one. Sam, question. yeah, answer Sam's. Uh, do we do we need a vision to get people focused on one piece of infrastructure? Who would be the visionary government or another Elon Musk? Um, I don't think, again, we're putting the infrastructure before the application, but there's plenty of capital. Yeah. If you could demonstrate the, the, that the demand exists and it is real, then we'll figure the rest of it out because the capital exists. And I definitely do not want the government doing it because that's just, when was the last time you went to a government resort and not in Russia? It is recognizing and quantifying that demand and making it real. And I think one of the key things is the federal government standing up and going, this is a good thing. Because right now, I don't know if it's some kind of secret or whatever, but no one in the federal government mentions Dear Moon mentions uh, Polaris Dawn, mentions the fact that, you know, before Artemis II flies four astronauts around the moon, you know, an artist from Japan will fly a bunch of art nerds around the moon. You know, that's the sea change that I'm expect I'm hoping will happen because then the demand will be known. And when the demand is demonstrated and known, the businesses will come because they're looking for new places that, that are empty. That's the thing about venture capital and startups. They fill the empty spaces. If you can identify that demand exists, you know, people will come in and work to meet that demand. And as long as the capital is there to do it, you can do that. We've identified more than 200 YouTube channels focused on space. Yep. Cumulatively, they have more than 20 billion views and 25 million subscribers. Mm -hmm.
Now, yeah, there's a lot of overlap for the subscribers. If you if you subscribe to NASA, you probably are subscribed to, to SpaceX. The view numbers in the in the tens of billions that says there's a market. That says there's yeah, interest. Market, but I mean, right now those YouTubers that are doing those, they're the ones getting revenue. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I know that. Yeah. How do we build? What kind of products can we build for those people that allows them to, that encourages them right. to spend more money? We're yeah. looking at. 20, 30 million subscriber base that's watching billions of hours of, uh, of SpaceX's launch or, or Astra or Rocket Lab or like there's definitely, you know, we've moved beyond the ISDC, Space Frontier Foundation. You know, we're, we're, those folks have never even heard of our organizations and yet they're glued to their channels to watch this stuff. Within the Space Frontier Foundation, we looked at the conference that we did last year. The the conference industry has moved beyond what we can do in our dinky little space conferences. We don't need to do new space conferences anymore. You know, you know, at least a dozen of them out there, and you can find one at your local at your local Ramada Inn. I think LinkedIn. You can, I can't read it over the. Under- I, I don't know who this is, but uh, they're asking, could we just tap those YouTube viewers for not a- legally? <laughs> This goes back to something that Michael Lane and I have been talking about for a very, very long time, is how do we get um, non-accredited investors to be able to uh, you know, invest in the space sector? And after the behavior and the SPACs and what happened there, I'm actually not sure that's a good idea. Retail investors are terrible at early stage technology investing. This is the dirty little secret, but all the companies that SPACed, except for Rocket Lab, they had to SPAC because all of the private investors like us passed on them. The public markets got our rejects. That's a pretty, that's a brutal line. I have to say we have to end on that line. The public company got the pros rejects. That's why you're going to get three space companies delisted from the NASDAQ in the next month. Astra, Momentus, and Spire. Wow, that's a that's a heck of a soundbite. Say that again. the The public markets through the public, mar- the public markets got the private markets rejects. That is a that's a terrible reality. I had not considered. I, I went public saying that the SPACs were kind of a terrible idea when uh, when Branson's first did it. I'm like, I don't think that's going to work. And nope. I mean, it worked for um, it worked for a few of them. It worked for Branson and it worked. For- Palapatia, but yeah. didn't work for the you know didn't work for the average uh, public equities investor. Yeah. All right, we have to close on that. Uh, see this note from uh, Doug Plata talking about SpaceX. Just you know, one minute response. Elon's goal is to have a fleet of a thousand starships by 2030. Per seat prices will be much lower than what investment uh, class individuals can afford. Afford. Yeah, yeah, I, I definitely agree. That's what we're waiting on. That's where that supply chain, how it works and things like that. I think a lot of what a lot of people are waiting on is, as with all things Elon, they usually take a little bit longer than you expected. But I also think people are realizing that the, given the, the refueling requirements and everything else, there's, there's just a lot of logistics issues. And so we don't exactly what the timing is. You, know, you game out the, the Mars windows, I think that the first starships headed to Mars uncrewed will probably be in the 2026 window, if I have that right. 
then we'll have the uh, the first crude one probably around the end of the decade. So All right. what, what does the market look like before then? That's a really good question. I don't know either. Michael Mealing, uh, general partner, Starbridge Venture Capital. As always, terrific chatting with you. We'll have you back on. Might do it. You know, April, we're really dedicating to Starship, where most of our conversations are already that beast of a ship. So once that thing flies, we'll bring it back. All right. Peace out, guys. Thanks very much, y'all. Appreciate it. Bye-bye. Bye, everybody.